0: let's continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures this morning. If you were here last week, then you know we started a Christmas sermon series just walking through the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. So if you have a Bible and are following along, about three quarters of the way through the Bible, the New Testament begins. And the first book of the Bible is what we call the gospel of Matthew. It's basically a biography of Jesus. Um, And Matthew has a A very intentional agenda in these first few chapters and really throughout his gospel. And it's related to the title of this sermon series that we named, Fulfilled. Um, Fulfilled is not some, uh, you know, uh, buzzword or cute title for a sermon series that we got through some marketing research. Fulfilled is a biblical word uh, throughout, especially the first few chapters of Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses that word, Fulfilled. Because his point is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He is the hope of Israel. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the promised son of David. He is the chosen son of Abraham who is to be the channel of blessing to all the nations and to undo the curse of sin. Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. There was a plan mapped out from the beginning of creation for the king to come and reclaim his people from the power of sin. And Matthew is showing how this plan is being fulfilled step by step in the life of Christ. Last week in chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, uh, Pastor Eric uh, walked through those verses that Talk about the conception of Jesus by the power of the Spirit and show how this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. That there was to be a virgin-born son uh, who was to be Emmanuel, God with us. Um, And he says this is the fulfillment of that prophecy, Christ Christ. As the narrative continues today in chapter 2, Matthew is going to quote, or actually he's going to quote somebody quoting Micah chapter 5, another one of the prophets about a shepherd king who will come from Bethlehem. So let's read these words and then we'll dive in together. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people King Herod inquired of them where is the Christ to be born The chief priests and scribes told Herod he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea for so it is written by the prophet And you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent the wise men to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way, and behold, The star that they had seen when it rose, it again went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when the wise men saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, the wise men saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to King Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is the greatest Christmas gift that you have ever received? What is the greatest Christmas gift that you have ever received. Many of us think about gaming consoles like a Nintendo or an Xbox. Some of you may think about a new pet that you received like a puppy or a pony. I know from my wife, she always tells us about her greatest Christmas gift. It was a Baby Alive doll. You know, one of these dolls that actually eats food and sips a drink and fills its diaper. This was, of course, years ago when she was a young girl and she thought this gift, this doll is the greatest because it's usually the newest thing. It's usually the coolest clothes. It's usually the latest technology that we associate with the greatest gifts. But then there's other times when it's the exact opposite. So for example, last year, my greatest Christmas gift was given to me by one of our fellow staff members at Woodside Lapeer, and it was this right here. If you can't tell, (laughs) it's a Michael Scott Funko Pop. Michael Scott, the main character from the show, The Office, and he's carrying his favorite mug that reads, World's Best Boss. Now this is just a small piece of plastic, right? Probably cost my friend 15 bucks, nothing too special. But it was great to me because of what it meant to me. It meant that this staff member obviously thought that I was the world's best boss (laughs) and that I have the management expertise of one Michael Scott. This is a really big compliment. It's a great gift, even though it's a cheap little piece of plaster. Or another example of this, now that three of our kids are a little older, we have two seven-year-olds and a nine-year-old, and now each Christmas they want to give gifts to us. And because the elementary school that they go to is a total racket and is always trying to get as much money out of us, they have started a Santa shop so that the kids can buy presents at school and share them with their parents and friends. And, you know, it is it is not the most impressive uh, items that they have for sale, things you might find on discount even at a discount store. You know, um, Last year, I got a necklace, I remember. Um, the year before that, I got a keychain. But those things were $1 or $2. We gave our kids Ziploc bags with quarters in them for them to buy them. But you know what? Cheap as those gifts are, I have kept those gifts. And I treasure them to this day because of the excitement and joy that my kids had in giving me those things. None of these gifts, meager as they are, none of them are as expensive as a PS5. None of them are as cool as a new wardrobe. None of them are anywhere near as great as a new car, a new set of golf clubs, or uh, a new boat. None of them are as great as those things, and yet they are. You see, there seems to be something woven into our experience of life that constantly teaches us true greatness is not always what it seems to be. The most beautiful, powerful, wealthy people are oftentimes the most miserable The most desirable, amazing experiences often become boring after a while, and the most expensive, glamorous Christmas gifts often end up meaning less to us than a little plastic doll your friend gave you or a cheap keychain that a child gave you, because greatness is not always what it seems to be. And this lesson about true greatness that's sprinkled throughout life, this same message is loaded into the message of the gospel. The good news of Jesus teaches us that greatness is not always what it seems to be. Jesus taught that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus taught that the greatest of all will be servant of all. Jesus declared that the meek will inherit the earth. And this gospel truth about greatness that Jesus would later teach and live out, it is foreshadowed in this narrative from his early life in Matthew chapter 2. So as we walk through this passage, we're asking ourselves, what can we learn about greatness? What is true greatness? And there are at least a couple of things that we can say about it. First, we'll see that greatness is not based on our reputation. Greatness is not based on our reputation. So during the time period when Jesus was conceived and during the time when he was born, there was all sorts of heavenly activity taking place on earth. God was speaking to people through dreams. Angels were appearing and delivering messages. And of course, the Holy Spirit worked to conceive Christ within Mary's womb. All sorts of heavenly activity is taking place on earth during this time. Well, several hundred miles away, east of the Holy Land, there was this group of what the text calls wise men, and the Greek term is literally magi. These guys were sort of spiritual gurus, magic sorcerers, and one of their pagan practices for trying to get a message from the gods was to study the stars. They thought that divine messages could be discerned through the stars, and and so they were, as we call them, astrologers. Well, around the time Jesus was born, they were studying the the stars like this, and towards the direction of Judah, In the skies above the promised land, they see what they think is a star. I think actually what they were seeing were angels, not a literal star. You remember the angels who appeared to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. The heavens open up. This glorious light appears above and all around the shepherds. I think that's what these wise men see all the way east of Judea, but they couldn't tell the difference being so far away. So they conclude it's a star. And this, of course, is a star that they'd never seen before, so it really catches their attention. And within pagan spiritual thought at the time, there was this common idea that there would be unusual astrological activity when a king is born. So when they see this star angels way off in the distance above the region of Judea, they immediately think, A king has been born in Judah! A new king is going to take the throne in Judah. This is what this star means. So what do you do when a new king arrives? Well, you go and pay homage. You go and pay respects and celebrate their enthronement. Not a new president is elected in this country and many thousands of people make the pilgrimage to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. And there's all sorts of pageantry and celebration. Well, that's what these wise men do. They head to Judea to find the newborn king. And what town do you think they go to first in search of this new king? Of course, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital city. It's where the temple is. It's where the palace is. It's where the movers and shakers of Jewish society live. Where else would a new king be born? I mean, if you heard that a new ruler was being raised up in this state, in Michigan, where do you think they're likely going to be? Detroit, Lansing, Grand Rapids, probably. One of these areas with a lot of people, one of these areas with a lot of political prominence, with a lot of cultural prestige. But when these wise men go to Jerusalem, they find out that there is no newborn king to be found. King Herod is a grown adult and he's been the king for some time, so... He calls in the chief priests and the scribes, and they're asked, where is the Christ to be born? In other words, where is the promised descendant of King David to be born? And in verse 5, the scribes answer by saying that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they ground their answer with an Old Testament text from the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, and you, O Bethlehem, You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, why do you think the prophet had to say about Bethlehem that it was by no means the least within Judea? Well, it's because Bethlehem had the reputation of being the least among the towns in Judea, even in the Christmas song that we sing. We sing about, oh, Little town of Bethlehem. So the prophet says, Bethlehem, your reputation is that you are the least. Your reputation is that you are little. And the city of Jerusalem's reputation, by contrast, towers over you. But Bethlehem, you are by no means the least. Why? Because of Jesus. That's the difference. Jesus, Israel's promised shepherd king, who was raised up in this tiny town. Bethlehem was insignificant and underappreciated in every way. It was not a hub of economic activity, it was not a center of cultural development, it was not the location of great educational institutions. But now, and because of Jesus, Bethlehem's prominence and fame is widespread. We sing about Bethlehem in our Christmas songs. Thousands of tourists visit Bethlehem every year. Its reputation has been elevated with the likes of Athens and Rome and Ephesus, this tiny town, now has dignity. This little town now has renown because true greatness is not always what it seems to be. And true greatness is not based on our reputation. True greatness is found in Jesus. True greatness is found in our connection to, our relationship with Him, not our hometown, not anything about us. You know, I kind of feel like I can relate with Bethlehem and the people from there because I am from Alabama, and across the country, Alabama does not have a great reputation, neither for its present nor for its past. We are not particularly industriously productive as a state, we are not overly contributive to our nation's GDP and economy. We are not known for our high marks in education. In fact, if it weren't for Mississippi, we'd be last in like every educational ranking. There's these bumper stickers, I kid you not, that say, thank God for Mississippi. (laughs) It's where we are. And so right or wrong, Our reputation is not great. And a part of the point of this narrative, a part of the point of the gospel, is that none of that matters. Because true greatness isn't always what it seems. It's not based on our wealth. It's not based on our cultural prominence. It's not based on our educational accomplishments, our workplace accomplishments. It's not based on our past failures. It's based on our relationship to Jesus. All of those things that the world bases their reputation on, none of it matters. Jesus is saying here, I relate to the lowly. I'm drawn to the disreputable. I associate with the least of these. So I don't care where you're from. I don't care how much you make. I don't care what title you may have or what degrees you may have earned. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because greatness is not based on our reputation. Secondly, it isn't based on our identity. Greatness is not based on our identity. So up until this point in verse 6, when the prophecy is quoted, and then really all the way through verse 10, there are really only three characters in this narrative. The first ones that are mentioned are, as we said, the wise men, the magi, which is where we get the word magic from. They were these divine enchanters. They were a part of this pagan priestly class. They were from somewhere east of Judea in the broad region of Persia. So, of course, they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. The second character is King Herod. King Herod ruled over Judea at time, but he he was not from the royal line of David. He did not deserve the throne. Instead, he was autocratically placed there by the Roman emperor. But he did have the title as king. And then the third group. The third group in the narrative are the chief priests and the scribes who are called in to answer the question about where the Christ was to be born. These guys were kind of the opposite of the magi. They were religious leaders within Judea. They led worship in the synagogues. They taught the scriptures to the people. They were experts in understanding the Torah, the law of Moses. And apparently, they also understood the prophets really well. They quote here from Micah chapter 5 and were able to answer the Magi's question. So those are the three characters so far in our story. Those are their identities. And of these three, which of, you, which of them do you think are greatest in the eyes of God? The pagan, sorcerer, magi, wise men? The powerful king, Herod? Or the religious scholarly priests and scribes? Of these three, which of them do you think responds to Jesus with appropriate humility and faith? The foreigner spiritual gurus? The reigning king, Herod? Or the Jewish priests and scribes? Well, what we're going to see in the coming weeks as we continue to study Matthew chapter 2, what we're going to see is that King Herod does not respond to Jesus with humble faith. Instead, he responds with murderous rage and he tries to kill Jesus. And the chief priests and scribes, they don't respond with glad devotion at the coming Christ. Instead, a few decades later, they eventually do kill Jesus condemning him to death in the Sanhedrin court, death by crucifixion. It was this group of religious leaders in Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2 who later plotted against Jesus to have him murdered in Matthew chapter 27. Same group. But these pagan, heathen, foreigner, spiritually wonky magi, look at how they respond to Jesus. Herod tells them to go to Bethlehem and bring back info about the child. So verse 9 it says, After listening to the king, the magi went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When the wise men saw the star, they knew what was coming. They knew they were close. And so they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And then they get there. Verse 11, going into the house, they see him. They see the child with Mary as mother, and they fall down before him in worship, and they open their treasures, offering him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the one who had the identity as a great king, King Herod, he responds to Jesus with murderous rage. The group that had the identity as Jewish religious leaders, the great priests and scribes, they eventually respond to Jesus with murderous rage. But the group who had the identity of being pagan, heathen, foreigner, spiritually wonky, the magi, they respond with glad and humble worship. Matthew says these men fall on their knees before the Christ child. Matthew says their hearts are full of joy as they draw near to him because greatness is not always what it seems. And greatness is not based on our identity. Throughout the Old Testament, but maybe especially in the prophets, it was foretold that when Israel is restored, when the Messiah comes... Not only will Israel be restored, but the nations will come and the nations will receive blessing and salvation from Israel's Messiah. So, for example, in Haggai chapter two, this was during the time when God's people had just returned from exile in Babylon and they are beginning to rebuild the temple God is seeking to encourage the people in their rebuilding efforts. And so through the prophet Haggai, God shares this prophetic word. This is Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house once more with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying that he is going to disrupt and shake up the kingdoms of the earth. When the kingdom of heaven invades earth, it's going to impact and transform all nations. And the wealth of the nations will come spilling in. The devotions of the nations will start to center on God's promised, God's true king, Jesus. And we see this dynamic already playing out right here in Matthew chapter 2. These men from strange lands, they make their way to Judea. They offer their gold. More importantly, they offer themselves to Israel's Messiah, the newborn king of the Jews. Brothers and sisters, the heathen nations are already streaming in right when he's born, prefiguring what is to come. Their Gentile identity did not matter. Their pagan identity did not matter. Furthermore, King Herod's kingly identity didn't matter. And the scribes' Jewish identity didn't matter. What matters is how they responded to Israel's Messiah, Jesus. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's the people you'd least expect. Because greatness is not always what it seems. Well, this morning, friends, we have an opportunity to respond to Jesus as well. We have an opportunity to respond to him in a very explicit and tangible way. It is the first Sunday of the month, and we have the rhythm of celebrating the Lord's Supper, the habit of celebrating communion each first Sunday of the month. It's this ritual of taking this meal, And it was established by Jesus himself on the night of his betrayal, leading to his death, Matthew chapter 26. The bread is a sign of his broken body for us. The cup is a sign of his spilled blood for us. And we don't eat and drink the cup in order to get some magical power to get us through the week. I hope you know that. We don't eat the bread and drink the cup to score points with God. No, we eat and drink this meal by faith. In other words, we eat and drink trusting that what Jesus did through his death delivers us from the power of sin. What Jesus did through his death is enough. It's enough to make us right with God. It's enough to bring us into God's family. And our eating and drinking is a declaration, church, I hope you know this, our eating and drinking of these humble elements, it's a declaration of what we believe about true greatness and what it really is. True greatness is not signified by a shiny trophy because of all of our accomplishments, True greatness is not signified by an awesome throne because of all the power we've accrued. True greatness is not signified by bars of gold and a dollar sign. True greatness is signified by a cross. Conventional wisdom would say that the cross is a sign of shame and rejection and loss. But for us who are in Christ, the cross is glorious. For us who are in Christ, the cross is our prize, it's our redemption, it's our hope. So if that's you, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you are trusting that he died in your place, then this meal is for you. And in a moment, we are going to eat and drink to the glory of our truly great God. And I'll lead us all in taking together in one moment. But... If that's not you, if you are not trusting in Jesus, I then urge you to not take part in this and instead use this time to reflect on this question. What's holding you back from giving your life to Jesus? What's holding you back from giving yourself to Jesus like these wise men in Matthew chapter 2? with humble, joyful receptivity of His mercy. What's holding you back? I sure hope that it's not that you don't think you're good enough for Him. Because, friend, your reputation, what others think about you or what you think about you, doesn't matter. Come and receive His mercy. And I sure hope what is holding you back is not your identity. No matter how much shame you may feel for who you are, no matter how dark your spiritual background may be, it doesn't matter. Come. Come to the foot of the cross. It's an equal playing field. We are all here broken. We are all here just as estranged as these wise men were. Come and receive his grace that forever flows at the foot of the cross. Let's spend a few moments reflecting on these things and then I'll come back up and lead us in eating and drinking as one.